welcome back to Tell It Anyway. This is our 20th episode, which I personally find a little bit amazing. But because I am a self-flagellating Josephson, uh, I thought I would put that number in its proper perspective and invite someone on the show who has done 887 episodes of one show on the internet. And let's not even get into how many total episodes. No, wait. Let's totally get into it. Scott Johnson, founder of Frog Pants Network, super talented artist, benevolent geek overlord. Do you know how many episodes in total you've ever done of podcasts? I did the math not long ago. It doesn't count the last 200 or so TMS episodes, but it was somewhere in like the 5,000 range. Oh Whoa. Yeah, it's pr- it's pretty bananas. And they, and the funny bit is I don't think about it ever until like tonight someone will bring it up and I'll be going, oh yeah, dude. And like if you, you took all that time and let's just say, let's say you took all of those shows and averaged them into an hour, which is about right. Some are longer, some are shorter, but on the whole, it's an hour. I don't even want to get into what that math means in terms of like, contiguous time recording it's pretty amazing wow. it's pretty bad so thanks for that i appreciate the <laughs> what can i say yeah okay so i often have a problem on the show about being open and honest because talking about my life scares the crap out of me so i invited back on the program one of the bravest people i know greta schwartz hi greta hi that's a hell of an oh, intro and I thank you audio again okay i'm back Okay, sorry. It's a great way to celebrate 20 episodes. I know, having technical <laughs> problems, which have marked every single one of these because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sure That's you had tradition. that problem in episode 2000. Sure. Greta is an improv comedian. She's done stand-up. She's a graphic designer. And she came on this uh, the show in episode eight and used the podcast to make a stunning declaration <laughs> of love to her current boyfriend. She told her current boyfriend she loved him on our podcast. and Before I told him. Yes, before she told him. So how did that turn out? I have to know. Wow. Uh, it turned out well. It was a challenge to myself to make sure that I would have the balls to tell him I loved him. So it's like, well, if I put it out there and there's a hard deadline, then I have to do it. And we were actually in Miami for uh, a trip together. And it was our last day. And the podcast was coming out like three days later. And <laughs> we were standing on the beach. And I just blurted it. Like blurted it. I was like, I, I love you. I just did it. And he just, he goes, okay, stop yelling. <laughs> was like, I was like, okay, okay. Anyway, so it went fine. Because now we're living together. We just moved in like Yay! four days ago. <laughs> so. I like to think that our little podcast had 1% of a, a, of a way in that. It really out. may have, for yeah. sure. Yay. So speaking of things that you can't believe happened, this week's topic is, is this real life? Question mark. A phrase which, of course, was uttered by the immortal young David after his dentist appointment. (laughs) Um, But it's become a helpful way for at least Matt and I to describe how we sometimes feel when things are either too good to believe or too bad to believe. And you just have to say, like, God, is this real life? And we'll never do it like David. (laughs) Uh, I feel Kind of felt good, didn't it? Uh, Is this real life? Yeah, this is real life. A lot of times when you live in Los Angeles, you find yourself saying, is this real life? Because it is... So not real life most of the time. 
this starts out because we are headed inevitably, sadly, towards an election year. 2016, mm-hmm. we're going to have to endure it. We're already enduring like the first wave of silly season of elections. The worst. The worst. And you know what this is? This is the first week of American Idol that we're in right now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when all the goofballs are on camera. Yep, yep. Um, and it's going to go on for, you know, three months and then one more year. But the one good thing about election years in our house is that every election year we are allowed to rewatch Aaron Sorkin's great television drama, The West Wing. Nice. Mm, I've, seen that, I've seen that show four times through entirely, and I'm just about ready for my fifth. I love that show more yeah, than that. So, so good. So good. And it, I'm just going to say for the, I don't know, maybe there are people that haven't seen it. It was an hour-long drama that started on NBC in 1999. It premiered nine months after The Sopranos. It was the height of network TV drama to me and it was about the staff of a white house under a fictional president named josiah jed bartlett and of course it was written by aaron sorkin and he drove himself to the edge of crazy trying to write every episode and coked out in about 2003 whatever Uh, works whatever works whatever (laughs) gets the job done um you know i can't say that i was watching it from the start because i was like very into sex in the city around that time you know that was my kind of new yorky east coasty show but my roommate in la was watching it in 2002 and so matt was my unofficial roommate there drinking all my diet cokes and so we started watching it and we went down to the i don't know if you guys are familiar with this term we went down to the video store whoa hold on back that truck up (laughs) videos eh i know we went and got dvds which is like the height of technology uh, and we caught up on the first few seasons and to wax poetic for a second that show for two writers Matt and myself it is the Everest of our ambition mm. it has been the way that a Sorkin back and forth goes has been like incorporated into our ongoing married life dialogue as if you were hearing Sorkin through like terrible computer speakers because we're not at all trying to say that we sound like that but like that just commitment to hammering through talking and never stopping talking like that's very much inspired by Aaron Sorkin in our lives and then we drifted away from the show when he left because it got a little plotty yeah so anyway this is all to say that Matt ends up getting a job in New York City on a late night talk show a lot of air quotes being used for the people quotes. out there. Sorry. <laughs> We've been talking about this a lot lately because Letterman retired and et cetera. And for a large part of that time, Matt Flanagan lived on a friend's couch. Oh, would that be my couch? Yes. <laughs> so Greta holds this whole experience of my husband's life when he was like super miserable working for Letterman and living on her couch and she's the one who got him and by proxy me back into the West Wing. So, Uh-oh. yeah, because you were watching it and you were like, guys, it's really not that bad in season five. <laughs> <laughs> so the show ends in 2006. I'm sorry, this was long setup, but it's worth it. Okay, and for the record, I watched, I love it all. Yeah. I, even when yeah. he left, in retrospect, at the time I was pissed. Right. But now I, I, I'm fine with it. It's fine. You go back and, and you're able to appreciate it in its subtler ways, but it was a rude shift, I think, at the time. I agree. Yeah. So it's like one, an, an emotional yeah. decision that you're making. You're like somehow offended that he would leave something you love. Right. Even though it was like killing him. So the good thing about living in L.A. is that you end up meeting by accident a lot of 
the West Wing staff. So in like 2007, I shared a flight with Richard Schiff, who played Toby Ziegler. And I, I, it was the one time I broke my never talk to anyone in airports because <laughs> I just wanted to like, he was with his family, they were at baggage claim. And I just said, listen, I just... I love your work. Uh, I wanted to know like you've affected us in our lives. And then I just like melted away. And he was so, of course, so nice. In 2008, I met Bradley Whitford, who played Josh Lyman at an election party in Hollywood. And it was sort of like if you dropped like a bucket of chum in the water around a bunch (laughs) of sharks, the way that people react to Bradley Whitford uh, amongst like the young female journalists and wow. young politicos it's like their dreams have walked into the room <laughs> like and then I that was when I broke my picture rule of never asking anyone for a photo and you can see on my face with Bradley Whitford I have like this sort of like super Jewish existential debate going on inside of me about like the idiocy of taking a picture with an actor and like how many of these photos but like at the same time I'm blushing when was this by the way that was 2008 so that was the Kerry election and it was at the CNN had a debate Uh and there was like a party I mean this this is a little douchey sounding but this is life in LA and like I saw Janelle Maloney who played Donna Moss in Target yeah so like Uh all these like little sightings but here is the story of the West Wing actor that like had a huge impact on our lives in this wow in a moment i know so it's 2005 and matt and i are inexplicably headed to the emmys okay why i don't know it it was so bizarre but he had written for letterman around the time that that you get nominated they were no longer working for letterman but they were nominated, and so we were like, well, what the hell? We're going to go to the Emmys. Nice. Um, and I had been in Mississippi covering Hurricane Katrina right before that, and I left to go make sure I didn't miss the Emmys because, of course, priorities. Well, yeah. It's not like people are out of their homes and homeless and living on boats and whatever. And I felt so disjointed coming back from this experience that like, I went and rented a dress and I was just like, I don't even know what. And that was like my first, like, is this real life? Like I was just living on a boat eating, you know, Pop-Tarts and, and biscuits for two weeks while we're covering a hurricane. And now I'm like being fitted for a beautiful black ball gown. I didn't know what to do. And you, you know, you go to the Emmys and you're like, it's super cool for one minute. And then you're just hot and uncomfortable <laughs> for like hours and hours. And then afterwards, you walk down this long hallway and it's filled with tuxedos and taffeta and you're being herded. And you get that weird buzzing sense of like famous people all around you. But you feel very alone <laughs> <laughs> because you're not really a part of that world. We just kind of like scooted in through the side door. We literally scooted in through the side door. Like we didn't even walk the red carpet. We went, (laughs) we got off the shuttle bus and went in the back and went to the Emmys. And I turned to Matt as we were like shuffling slowly down this hallway. And I said, well, you know, we should enjoy this because we may never be back. And, you know, he just lost the job at Letterman and who knew what was in the future. And it was just a very lovely Christmas ornament of mm-hmm. uncertainty. I don't know. And then I say this, you know, we may never be back. And there's this older man in a white tuxedo jacket. <laughs> and he turns around and he just gives us like the most heartbreaking knowing grin. And we've seen this grin 
hundreds of times on television. And John Spencer, who played Leo McGarry, turned to us. I know. I'm like almost (laughs) crying talking about it. And he said, don't say that. You never know. And then he put his arm around his date and just ambled on down the hallway. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Leo makes everything better. Leo makes everything better. And we were just stunned because... This is the classic character actor, right? Like he's just, he was always a lieutenant and a detective and he was like a procedural suspect. And then he was on LA Law. And then like. He got hung off a balcony by uh, uh, in The Rock. Yeah. I mean, he's just in every movie you've ever seen. And like he had LA Law, but it wasn't until the West Wing that he just got what he deserved all those years, which was like acclaim and nominations and Mm. and i mean just like having that happen to us i think we floated all the way down (laughs) the hallway and then unfortunately three months later he died of a heart attack and it was just like that moment has always stuck with me as it was just a moment frozen moment in time and we would always talk about it because we've had like after that just proceeded to have 10 more years of like every up and down and up and down yeah. and it just almost bankruptcy and 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 sickness and success a little bit here but never enough cuz you're always then end up broke again and like always always we would talk about John Spencer saying you never know when you're going to be back and so there's like a weird ending to this story which is you know, so in 2010, like Matt had less than $200 in the bank and I probably had less than that. And he gets a job in TV. It was like the job that saved our lives. And it was this long road back to like solvency and creative fulfillment and all this stuff. And somehow in my mind, and this is like how weird I am. uh, I'm really obsessed with like symmetry. And I always hoped that we would end up back at the Emmys 10 years down the line. I just, it's not a realistic thing because Matt works on these shows that are like really fun, but they don't even like last long enough to get nominated for best craft services. Like, you know, they're, they're 13 episodes and gone. And in the back of my mind, I just somehow wanted to prove John Spencer, right. I wanted to prove that we could get back to the governor's ball at least and go eat all the jumbo shrimp that people leave mm. on the tables. And it was just, a, I didn't even tell Matt about the stream cause it was so stupid because you can't, go to the Emmys if you don't get nominated, <laughs> right? Generally, yeah. Generally, that is a general rule. Like, I think you can buy your way in, but it's not the same. Or some special invite. Some or- special invite. So, but a funny thing happened a, a couple weeks ago. Oh. So, last year, Letterman ends his 22-year year run on The Late Show, and the show does, like, a lot of retrospectives at the end, right? So, Matt starts getting residual checks again 10 years after. And that's fine. It's, like, enough to get takeout. It's that's sweet. But then we get another thing in the mail. And I come home then one night after work and Matt is just looking at me with this really odd expression. And I'm like, what? Don't look at me. You don't, I've had so many of these things as like a Hollywood wife. I've had so many things that are like, what? Just tell me the news. Don't hold it <laughs> over me. And he shows me this letter. And I read the letter. And such a girl, I burst into tears. And I just burst into like sobbing hysterical tears and then I'm laughing and sobbing and laughing and sobbing and he's just looking at me like what is going on so it turns out there's some high muckety muck at Matt's agency his representation 
wrote a letter congratulating him for his 2015 Emmy nomination for The Late Show with David Letterman. What? Wow, really? Yeah, and we were like, what the fuck? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Because, I mean, we both knew the moment we read the letter that it was like some hilarious clerical error that had to do (laughs) with like the residual checks coming in, and so we were on some spreadsheet, and it triggered some letter on another spreadsheet, and it was total crap. But in my heart, I knew, like without a shadow of a doubt, that John Spencer sent us that letter. (laughs) (laughs) because you never know and it was just this like weird little joke from above that was like you keep going don't ever stop that's awesome so that's my john spencer story that's really cool (laughs) yeah it was nobody likes that if you like that show at all he's a hallmark of oh yeah 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 and it just was like the strangest moment in time and like Every time we rewatch it, it's so like, oh, God, we just have to keep going. Because, like, you never, I think some people in Hollywood really make it, but most people in Hollywood just keep working. Like, they're lucky. Lucky they're to keep lucky. working. You're, and we're privileged yeah. to keep working. And you just mm-hmm. keep trying to make it another day and another day and another day. And in some ways, John Spencer was like the, the absolute icon of that sort of lifestyle, it was always working always never quite getting the recognition they deserved and like you know we just had that one moment i don't know so that was my little hollywood story (laughs) so sweet greta so you got to tell me like what was it like having matt flanagan live on your couch (laughs) (laughs) is there still a matt flanagan shaped hole in the couch no it's so funny you should ask this because (laughs) today matt flanagan living on my couch for six months has ruined my life and it's coming to a head right now. What? Because I wasn't like taking any rent from him. Or I think maybe towards the end, maybe right. I did. I don't remember. No, a little bit um, of rent. A little bit okay. of rent. I think at some point he he bought a TV for my place. Like he bought me a new TV instead of um, the rent or an addition. I don't remember. Right. But I work at a community center, so I'm poor. And I've never replaced that TV. It's it's just like a big big budded TV that they made back in the day. It's not flat screen or anything. Um, and it's massive. And I'm dating up. So my boyfriend has a beautiful flat screen TV. Mm. So I have to get rid of my TV, which you can't just leave on the sidewalk anymore. It's illegal in New York City. So I had to find like some like hippie to come get my TV, to take it to the eat to electronic recycling. Her car broke down. It's still sitting in my apartment. I don't have the lease anymore. My landlord's a dick. He'll probably charge me for another day. And now I have to like find someone else to get this fucking TV out of my apartment (laughs) that Matt Flanagan bought me. (laughs) That bastard. Those are horrible. They're they're really hard to move. They don't fit anywhere. They suck. Yeah, they're terrible. They they suck. They're humongous. So yeah, so I'm still trying and dealing with that. But um, yeah, Matt was fun. Uh, yeah. Was he really neat and, and, and packed up all his clothes and, and left them very neatly uh, in a corner somewhere? Well, he had a corner. <laughs> I don't think it was neat in that corner, but it was pretty well confined to a corner. Right, that's about uh, the best you can the best you he had can a lot hope of, for. A lot of Thai food and a lot of mango. Oh, right. A lot of sliced mangoes. <laughs> that is such a specific Matt detail. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but it was really weird because Matt ended up living in Park Slope, Brooklyn for like six months, which mm-hmm. is where I lived for the first 10 years of my life. So it was really strange. Mm-hmm. Like Matt got to be a Brooklynite and thanks to Greta and thanks to Greta for taking care of him because he really 
I don't know. He might have just ended up like sleeping next to the trash cans on 53rd. Like if nobody had taken him in. Oh, he was so miserable too. It's like it would have been. I hope it was a good experience anyway. It sounds like it had a nice bow tie at the end at least. It did. It had a nice bow tie and a lot of jumbo shrimp at the governor's. (laughs) There you go. Hey, Hollywood. I'm here singing the blues. We lost someone, someone way too soon. I have many stories about is this real life? The problem with me is I've told 99% of them <laughs> the morning stream because that that's my vent for that. So I've told the accidentally laid a, a dog poop bag on the side of an old lady's face for a five-minute conversation. <laughs> Hard to explain uh, out of context. But I have a million of those, right? They're happening to me all the time. Uh, for whatever reason, I think Burger Kings are haunted. And when I go there, I have <laughs> terrible experiences. Oh. So I could go on about any of those. But I decided that this theme is a particularly strong match for a story that is nearly as old as I am. I was very young when this happened to me. Uh, Well, I was eight years old, so I guess not that young, but young enough to be super young, but old enough to remember it. And still to this day, I'm just not sure what happened that day. I just don't know what was going on or what was real, what wasn't real. Was I, did I imagine the entire thing? I've literally asked my mom before uh, to confirm some of these details and she has. She's like, yeah, that totally happened. But I still, to me, it felt fake. Can you paint a picture of eight-year-old Scott Johnson? Yeah, skinny, uh, pretty sunken in looking chest, uh, (laughs) gangly arms. I look like a spaghetti-armed alien uh, creature, or at least I thought I did. I look back now and I go, I was kind of a cute kid. Yeah, but at the time, I, I didn't think so at all. I thought I looked like this horrible creature. And that only got worse. I hit puberty, and it just it seemed to get worse. And <laughs> it I always does. I, I was in, like, my late 20s, and I went, oh, I'm fine. Quit worrying about this. This is stupid. And then wish I was that skinny again. But anyway, <laughs> so I'm just this dorky kid. And this is 8-year-old Scott, which is, you know, Star Wars came out the year before, and I'm flipping out. And my whole life is different now because of things like that. Right. I completely dive deep into my nerd nerd bone and, <laughs> and that's, that's just my thing now and I'm interested in everything to do with science fiction and stuff and so me and my friends we're all just you know we're going to the arcade on the weekends and we're reading science fiction and fantasy books and we're, we're kind of the stereotype uh and as I got older you know D&D and all that but when I was eight all of my pursuits to draw and all this other stuff I was interested in seemed to come to a screeching halt because one day out of nowhere, I developed a bunch of little red blotchy looking sores all over me. Finger oh, to f- no. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, and it came out of nowhere, just woke up one day and they didn't itch. They hurt like it was painful and they were all over the place. And it looked like it wasn't like measles, which I'd already had or any of that. It was something else. And we didn't know from a home remedy standpoint what it might be. Right. So my mom flipped out and she's like, well, crap, we need to take him in. And I remember all of this very vividly. So she took me to the hospital, to the doctor, made an appointment. It wasn't an ER visit. It was an appointment because, you know, I wasn't freaking out or passing out or, you know, didn't have some horrible fever or anything like that. But, you know, suddenly I'm covered head to toe and we needed to know, is this an allergic reaction? Is this something else? Like what's going on? So we get there and this is when things get weird. And I've never forgotten it. And it comes to mind anytime I have to go to the doctor for anything, just to check, just to like a, Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Okay. See you later. I still think of this. So I get there and I remember 
them talking very seriously about what this could be and being very confused by it. And this specialist not knowing what was going on. And my mom kind of panicking in the other room and I'm thinking, well, great, I'm dying or something. And that's not a good way to feel when you're eight. So I just kind of let it go, let time pass. And then they came out and they said, we need you young man to pee in this little cup here. We need you to pee pee in this cup. And I said, all right, I can, I can manage that. I'm eight. I got it. (laughs) I got this. I've I've been doing this for a while. I got pretty good aim. I got this. So I said, let me have the cup. And I, and they've got me in one of those gown things with your butt hanging out. And you know, you just feel like an idiot the whole time you're there. They tell me where the the men's room is. I get a little lost. They seem impatient with me for whatever reason. And that could be just, you know, I'm eight and I'm, I'm just feeling out of my world there. But anyway, they finally find this bathroom and I think, all right, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to do what I need to do. And I go in there and it's pitch black except for light coming from under the door and I can't (laughs) find the light and I'm reaching around for the light and I'm hitting a switch, but the switch isn't actually doing anything. It's just turning some fan on and there's no light switch next to it. And I'm in there holding a cup in a gown, eight years old, feeling like a complete doof and I don't know what to do. I can't do this in the dark. At least I don't think I can. I look across the room and there's enough light coming under the door that I see this is a long bathroom, like a big, long one, almost like you'd see like in a high school movie, like a John Hughes movie where they're all putting their makeup on in some long girls bathroom (laughs) kind of thing. It's like that big, long counter, multiple sinks. I'm like, wow, this is, you know, this is fancy. I can see there's like four stalls, not not just the normal two you'd see in a little doctor's office. And I just thought, well, this is, this is impressive and, and, and big and interesting. And then I see this other kid in there. And he seems to be having the same problem. He can't find where he's going. He's bumping into stuff. He can't find the light, clearly, or we'd both be seeing. And even at that age, I remember this 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 thing I have. It probably contributes to my podcasting career, but I can't shut up. I have to, like, say something in awkward or quiet situations. I have to to talk. It's my way of getting past the awkward. And I have a great Tom story to tell you one day. (laughs) Anyway, so I I get to the point where I'm really frustrated. And I say, something to the effect, you're in here too, eh? You know, or whatever. And it just looks at me, just stared at me. God, is this a story? By the way, I'm alone in my office right now. I promise there's nothing scary. Okay, because I'm already getting scared as if this kid is going to be like He's not a psycho or have a knife or a syringe or anything. Okay, like I need a teddy bear, I think, at this (laughs) point. Okay, go ahead. I look at this kid, and he just stood there and stared at me. He's got his cup in his hand. I can tell, silhouetted sort of. And and there's enough to make out sort of some of the features. And he looks like about my age and height and everything. And he's just looking at me, won't answer. And so I said... You know, uh, well, do you have the maybe the light on over there? Or do you have a light or something? So some kid way of saying that. And he just, again, stood and stared. And I thought, fine, you jackass. I don't, <laughs> I don't need this. I'm just going to pee in my cup and get out of here. And I, I'm, I'm still sort of trying to figure out what to do. And then I see, oh, wait, no, the light's down here. They've got a fan thing up here. It's lower. I find it finally. I'm ignoring him now. I'm like, he's going to do what he's going to do. I still hate doing this in a room with multiple people, but I just want to get out of here. So I flick the light on. I whip around, turn around. There are only two stalls in the bathroom. There are only, there's only one sink in there. There is a ceiling to floor Ah. mirror. What? (laughs) A mirror from the ceiling to the floor that I was talking to the entire time. Oh my God. I thought it was a guy. It was me. And now I'm really... 
utterly, completely embarrassed. <laughs> and no one saw it. Yeah. Like, it's not like I had to tell anybody or even express it or anything, but it was so humiliating that I was talking to nobody about trying to find a light and trying to pee in a stupid cup. That's amazing. So I finally do it. And this is just the frosting on the already kind of shitty cake that I had that day. Mm. I take it, I pee in the cup. I put the little lid on it. I do as I'm told. I'm pissed in there. I, can, I remember being mad. And I shut the light off and I go out of the door and I come out to the nurse. And she says, oh, you're all set for me? I said, yep. And I hand over the cup to her. And then she says this, and I'll never forget it. She takes it out of my hand. She looks at it squarely and goes, whoa. And then walks away. Oh. That to me was the weirdest bit because I don't know what she's talking about. Were there what like floaties? Was there like a like a what were there little like what are those yeah. things? Sea monkeys growing in there? Like what oh, was going yeah. on with my stupid urine sample? And oh she and they never clarified that, never said a word about it. I don't wow. know how to ask. I'm not gonna go, hey, so hey doc, your nurse said uh, whoa, what does that mean? I mean, I'm eight. I'm eight. Oh. So here's how here's the in the so the good part is they never knew what it was. Went home. Two days later, it all faded. We still never know what, what did so it. So weird. Yeah, and it I never had so it again. Weird. It was some kind of like autoimmune thing for maybe just a growing kid is the huh. thing they had. And this would have been, I mean, I was eight. It was like 78 or nine. They or would have known nothing about that, really. Well, not as much as they know now. So so I went out of there. But I have always since then felt like that was the most surreal visit to any kind of professional yeah. office I've ever had in my life. Yeah. That's a weird thing about doctors and nurses is like some of them have really great bedside manner and then some of them like they almost take like a weird perverted pleasure <laughs> in knowing more than you do about anything at any given time and knowing that they hold the power to tell you whether yep. you're sick or okay and they just there's like this one half nanosecond of pause that they always do where you're like this is dramatic effect mm -hmm. well, i have one that does like he'll say so is this like uh what you call it i heard about so much and he'll go eh, like that yeah eh. like all right smarty pants mr degree <laughs> and freaking medical hoo-ha i'll take your advice i guess yeah. but anyway it was just one of those times where i walked out and to this day still really feel like that really happened. Did I have all those spots? Was there a bathroom where I talked to myself? <laughs> like, it was a very odd thing. Yeah, and that's just like th there are so many mysteries that doctors just don't know, and that's one of the things as that we I get older and age into my forties that I become more and more is like they just ask you a ton of questions and then they make their general best guess yeah. because there are so many things that they just can't actually, especially like in the autoimmune territory, which I have been lately exploring. They just don't know. There isn't an answer. And like you just like you want to go to a doctor for an answer. Yep. Mm -hmm. They don't always have it, do they? No. It's not like I, I can be mad at them. I mean, sometimes they just plain don't have it. But I always admire the, you know, I, I sometimes wish like when I've had something weird like that or even more recently, I've had some strange things that are still hard to explain. I would much rather just go in with a, one of those good old fashioned broken legs and just say, yeah. look at this bone, man, sticking out of my, clearly I've got a broken leg. Let's put a cast on that. Let's have girls sign it. It's going to be the best week of my life. Like those kinds of visits don't seem to be in my, my history or my future. Yeah. It's a I hate, I hate when they like give you a choice, like, well, you know, you could do this or you could do that. And you're like, you're the doctor. <laughs> what do I do? I'm not qualified to make this decision. Right. Oh, you know, you just 
go with your gut, get a second opinion. Then that's different. I, have, I was like, that's the funny bit is I've got a doctor who always recommends the second opinion. So I always get a second opinion. But the minute I question his diagnosis yeah. thing and say, maybe I'll get it checked. He is all put out and, and seems frustrated by it. Yeah. So to me, it's like navigating junior high. I don't know why doctors and dentists and all those people have to be so hard to navigate, but they are. Well, and also it's when doctors don't like each other. And so you're like, I, and especially in Beverly Hills, which is where I tend to go to doctors because I am my grandmother's granddaughter. Um, and you, <laughs> you go to all these doctors and you say, they're like, well, who told you that? And you'd be like, oh, doctor so-and-so. They'll be like, ugh, and say nothing else. You're just like, what? Yep. Like, it's just a doctor. Like, they're just like you. And they have these longstanding weird grudge matches about something like who uh. knows what. And it's just really strange. And, and I really do. You're right. I long for the days when it was just like, yeah, you got the chicken pox. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe those days never existed. And maybe people would say, ah, you got the, uh, you know what you got there? The rheumatoid uncle flu or whatever. <laughs> some some bullcrap thing from the 1800s. And, but there's a, there's a simplicity to that. I've had this yeah. conversation with people before, but. People always say, oh, we're so much better off now. And I agree. We are. I had I had sight-saving eye surgery when I had a genetic thing kick in where I had to have early cataracts, stuff that only 80-year-olds get. Wow. I'm getting it in my 30s. I'm like, what the crap is this? And I found out my dad had it, and then his dad had it. So it's a normal thing. And in 2012, 2013, you can go in, and in eight, eight minutes, they've fixed you. You've literally been fixed. Amazing. Uh, in the 1800s, I'd be white-eyed and sitting on a rocking chair in some horrible old dusty town telling stories or whatever while, you know, people <laughs> walk into town. And yet you're still How, telling stories. Yeah. <laughs> How well, that's different a good point. is that really from what you do every day right now? I feel like there'd be a tinge of insanity to, to it in the 1800s. I wouldn't be able to take very good care of myself. So I'm really grateful for modern science, yeah. but there was something simple about saying... We don't know what's wrong with Junior. And you could just say, well, let me see his elbows. Ah, what you got there? And they just <laughs> some phony baloney. I kind of, there's something about that that I like. Back 20 years ago, back So I was diagnosed with cancer, thyroid cancer, about three and a half years ago. God. And all my stories about it are pretty funny, I promise. Because I'm fine, so and everything turned out fine. Wait, hold but, on. Yeah. Half Jew has to knock on both sides of the wooden desk. Half Jew. <laughs> okay. You just went full Jew by doing that. I just that. went well, full Jew by knocking, knocking wait, on wait, both sides. Wait, no, that, that, the non-Jewish half is the one knocking on the wood because I learned that knocking on the wood is like knocking on the wood of the crucifix. Oh, oh wow. Is that true? So who would know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, continue. So anyway, so the a little background is that my mom died of thyroid cancer when I was like 16, so I actually spent like my whole life waiting to get in a very negative I'm going to get this, which I wasn't going to. There's no it's not hereditary. There's no reason for me to think I didn't even know what a thyroid was, but I was just like waiting to die from what she had died from. Um and then I actually got thyroid cancer just like she did. So this is the not funny part. Right. I'm sorry. No. There's always, yeah. I mean, okay. <laughs> just so we're clear. I'm sitting yeah. here like, I'm not going to cry again. <laughs> it's not going to happen again. Uh, no. So that's a different story. I had my surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Mm -hmm. And everything I did with them was amazing. It was like a really good experience. Um, and they told me from the beginning I was going to be fine, most likely. So I didn't, I wasn't really... 
I wasn't too nervous. I wasn't too terrified, but I was... There was uh, a, like a lingering fate, destiny cloud that you were... Yeah. Yeah, and it was like... Yeah. The weird thing is that the, the fate, destiny cloud was this negative nightmare. And the reality was actually turning out to be a very positive, uplifting experience because I was doing a great job and I was going to the doctors and I was taking notes and I was actually felt like the best I've ever felt in terms of myself was getting through it, which was really awesome. So that was like the very opposite of what I expected it to be. So the day of my surgery, again, I was pretty calm, which is not normally my style. They took me in and they gave me this like huge gown. Reminded me of what Scott was saying, like a massive gown that like even the nurse gave it to me and started laughing. I'm 4'11". I've been 4'11 since I, I assume since I'm like eight. So they were just like laughing, but they're like, this is our adult gown. You're an adult. And then it's like, like, so I'm sitting there waiting. They do whatever tests they have to do to me and they're going to bring me in soon. And this like little old lady with this white hair and she looks like she's upper eighties. This like crazy, like Kmart looking sweater walks up to me (laughs) and she says, hi, I'm sister Ellen. Okay. She's like, I can either wish you luck and sit and talk to you, or I can say a prayer for you. And normally I would be like, okay, well, first, if you asked me to say a prayer, I'd tell you, probably tell you to fuck off. So, <laughs> but I wasn't going to do that to cute little sister Ellen. She was like a golden girl. Like right. she was so cute. Like little Sophia came up to me. So I was like, okay. It even felt rude not to give her her wish of being able to pray for me. Right. Um, like, like selfish. Am I being selfish by not letting you pray for me? Um, so I said, sure, you can pray. And she closed her eyes and she said, you know, dear Lord. And started rambling. And I like, you know, like in the movies when everyone's bending their head and saying grace at like one kid, like yeah. looking around. Yeah. I was like that person, like sister Ellen is like bending her head and closing her eyes and praying for my life and my health. And I'm like looking around being like, Get a load of this, people. <laughs> so weird. What is happening? And instead of being freaked out and annoyed, I was like so entertained by the like silliness of it all. And then she left and wished me luck. And I said, thank you, Sister Ellen. It was very sweet. And then uh, my nurse came and he asked me if he wanted me to wheel, wheel me in my bed or if I wanted to walk, actually. And I said, I don't think I'll walk. I'm feeling healthy and strong. So we start walking down this hallway. And it's like a large marble hallway, really tall ceilings, wide halls. And it's like me and my nurse. And then like 20 feet in front of us is another patient in a gown with his nurse. And like another 20 feet in front of them, it's a patient in gown with his nurse. And I was so like. you like the planes at LaGuardia. Kind of. Like <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I actually, to me, I always felt like, I always say that I was like sort of the creepiest parade that you could imagine. <laughs> It's like, what? Um, and so I actually said to my nurse, uh, are we in a parade right now? And he said, no, it's the shift change. Oh, no, it's the new wave because it's called the new wave. And every few hours there's a new wave and everyone goes to their different surgeries. And that was like such a, that was like a very weird dreamlike feeling of like, we're all just wearing like being marched off to that, that term has a bad connotation. <laughs> It wouldn't be Greta. We're all being, <laughs> um, we're all being uh, you know, walked down a hallway like all at the same time. We're all going to like our own experiences. And it felt very like bonding and weird. And it felt like, a, what's that movie with Albert Brooks where he's like oh, going uh, up? To- I love that movie. Um, 
Oh crap! The, where he's uh, rip torns like the uh, yes, uh, rip torns the back. Wait, is it defending your life? Yes. yes okay, okay, okay. What a fantastic! It sort of felt like defending your life. Like I was being walked to with like every, and everyone was in line to go. It was, but it felt cool in a way. Like again, it was like this sort of odd experience where like you could take something so weird, but if you just sort of take the positive dreamlike aspect of it, you're like so weird. Anyway, so I went into the surgery room. He pointed me to the OR. And there's like a bunch of, there's like six people in there hustling and bustling and doing whatever they do before surgery. And like in the corner, there's like the cutest doctor I've ever seen. Just oh, so nice. handsome. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, like I am psyched. I was like walking over to the table and I was like trying to like get his attention to like say hi. And then I was like, I'm at Sloan Kettering. I'm in a gown. We're talking about cancer surgery. It's like, this is not the Tinder date I sort of was like right. hoping for with this guy. But, like, for me to have the mindset of being, like, finding a cute doctor and wanting to flirt is, like... Well, you're oh. a third of a way through a Sex in the City script, may I just say. Like, <laughs> yes! Say. Yeah, you're already, um, well, my wife yeah. watched the show more than I did, but... And then I was, like, sort of thinking of, like, I wonder what, he's, what this guy does during the surgery, like, what his role is. I know my surgeon, so it's not him. And then I was, like, what if he's inserting a catheter into me oh no and i was like that's not how i want to like meet this guy like, <laughs> like and i didn't i mean no apologies to anybody but like i'm not waxed for this you know like i, I was thinking about surgery and cancer not about like the cute doctor that might tube my leg. i was like a little bummed out and then i was like schwartz you're here for surgery stop thinking about all these like stupid things but again the the fact that I was thinking about all these things were like it was nice to be like having like my sense of humor as opposed to the cancer or the nightmare or whatever it was just like and and so when you said like is this real life I was sort of thought about this because I what was the real life is the real life the surgery and the and the cancer and the my ability to not be in it or is it in fact the real life is me being me regardless of the situation and surroundings and it's i, I don't know what i mean maybe they're that just would be really it would be super interesting if there was a way to duplicate that in a reliable way like to, to be able to not to, to to take whatever caused you to go into it with that mindset and translate that into i mean everyone's got self-help books and how to you know turn your life around or how to handle hard situations or whatever but if there's like a trick to that, that would be a that would be a well-paying trick. Like people would love to be able to do that in their lives. Because it felt like a trick because up until that point, I didn't think I was capable of it. I mean, I was like always anxious and negative and freaked out and a very fearful person. And just like, and then there I was. And it was like really funny. And I have like, I do a lot of storytelling and a lot of these stories are about this. And I like to like, I don't know. And so, like, when I said I had a cancer story and you guys were like, uh-oh. But I was like, no, I promise. There's funny stuff all around. It's like it doesn't it – was, so it was like I don't know what the real life of that was. But To me, it's the idea that – and having been with Matt now for 14 years, it is the idea that comedy sets you free from your anxiety because if you can laugh at anything, then it robs it of its power. I was yeah. – very much, you know, Greta, you know my dad, right? Like Upper West Side legend, yeah, yeah. radio guy, blah, blah, blah. It's a big shadow. And for the first 26 to 30 years of my life, I very successfully lived within that shadow and lived within the reality of being a good little daughter to this big sort of, you know, regionally famous, successful man. And like sitting between him and Garrison Keillor in a cab ride on the way home and 
just accepting like if you listen to radio clips of me when I'm 13 years old on the radio with my dad talking about the movies I like I sound like a douche I sound like (laughs) a pretentious little like my favorite movie was Back to the Future and we discussed that it was my absolute favorite movie but when asked I decided to say that it was shock a lot Oh my because God. Because <laughs> I was a little asshole. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but Matt, and this is what goes back to your worldview on really terrible things. Like, it's Matt that taught me that if you make fun of something that, that you love, it releases like the demon yeah. hold it has on you. And so he was the one that first did like the brilliant impersonation of my dad that I then later adopted and expanded. Uh-huh. And now I can like speak about this, all this experience of growing up like in this just bizarre environment with a sense of perspective. And I yeah. think that's what you were discovering at that time is your own perspective. And it usually takes either being like up against something really bad or having a little bit of distance from it. But I'll never forget that feeling of like, oh, if I laugh at it, it won't make me anxious anymore. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that. That's hard for me, even though it doesn't seem like it is. Like I, this, it's primarily what I do is laugh at stupid stuff I do. But I only seem to be able to do that on the air. Like it's not actually funny. I can't, it's hard for me to find the humor in say, I don't know, uh, let's say I fall down the stairs. Right. It's, it's funny as hell, but I don't think it's very funny. Right. And it's hard for me to, it's not a very good example, but it's hard for me to find the humor in that when I'm on my own. When yeah. I have an audience, somehow that's easier. I don't know why that is. It's a strange I thing. I, I'm going to make something up, but um, I feel like when it's just you, you make it personal. I mean, right, because it's just happening to us. So it's like we can make it personal and take it personally, whatever's happening. And maybe when there's an audience that you're sort of, you're, you're like speaking to, it's not really about you because you're making that experience about them, the way you're relating it to them. So maybe it's like you don't actually take things personally because you're able to take yourself out of it. And my sister is a bachelor therapist would, would argue that we need each other for this purpose. Um, or this mm. is one purpose that we need other people for is this kind of venting only happens when there are other people. You can't really tell yourself about how bad your day was, but you can tell someone else that they can diffuse that. You can laugh about it. You can cry about it. You can be mad about it, but one way or the other, you got crap out. And, uh, that's the hard bit. If you're on your own, the solo version of that, if you don't have an audience or if you don't have a Matt Flanagan or if you don't have wherever, is you watch Six Grey's Anatomies and eat a wheel of brie. Yeah. Oh, my God. Fine. Yes. That does the same thing. Yeah, but do you, eat the whole, do you eat the waxy outside or just the brie inside? No, but you definitely gnaw at the... Yeah, the to get the, all the stuff the off. The thin the line food. between the waxy outside and like the sort of the pith. You know, I've you like I've, scrape it on the, your bottom yeah, teeth. Yeah, you're sure. just like I'm gonna. Brie is expensive. I'm gonna get every last bit yeah. of this brie. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, you're making me hungry, really. Well. I know, <laughs> I know. Just saying, brie is a trigger word for me. But like, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I I do think Wendy, your sister, is absolutely right, and and I think that it was Matt for me who like unlocked some sort of deep recessed funny that maybe was there in the little girl who spent all her life observing things, but didn't know how to turn it around and like do something with it. Mm. 
And I feel like Greta, you were the same way. Like you were, we've talked about this in the last time you were here, which is how observant and careful you were about planning your little red wagon comedy party, Mm -hmm. which by the way, is my still one of my favorite stories <laughs> ever. Greta had a little red comedy wagon, Scott, and she used to pull it all around town and there were jokes inside of it. My gag. They were her gag wagon. It That's was a, a gag wagon. You're like a you're like a prop comic, but better than that. Yes. <laughs> but it like a little girl. And it just every time Matt Matt and I talk about it a lot, it cracks Aww. us up. But um you know, you we we have all these observations, but you're just not ready to, to turn them into anything and that's what I think so magical about like the morning stream and all the stuff that you do Scott is like you found the way like you found the way to do that and are probably a lot better off for it if often tired well it's my sister's theory is that I that this is the way I ended up finding my release valve and I have a pretty I have a pretty great family life my wife's amazing my kids are amazing like I don't have a single thing to complain about my kids don't even rebel. I don't know how all this worked out for me, but it just did. But I part of it is probably because I was so worried it was going to be hard. I was so worried that it, mm-hmm. what kind of dad am I going to be or, you know, am I going to be the kind of husband that you'd, somebody would want to be with for their whole life or these kinds of things. And those kinds of anxieties, I think, maybe translated to me needing an additional way to vent, vent the gas. And I found it in this in this weird medium. Like it was a way for me to not just, not just that. I mean, there's a lot of creative things and a lot of other things that I've always been interested in with radio and art and everything else. But this just gives me a way to just afterburn all that stuff out and get it out there. And there's something about the honesty of it and the just letting it sit there in the open air that is really gratifying. And even though I'll get crap for certain stories for years, (laughs) because I I told them or whatever, um, the poo bag on the lady face is really a, (laughs) You know, one that haunts me still, but it's, it's, I just feel better about having done that than having not done that. Yeah. Even if that stuff, you know, finds me later on Facebook or whatever. Right. I mean, I've had stories that poisoned me for years. Like the, the story I told about crashing the camp van, which is just like, in some ways I should have like told it 10 years ago, but I just mm-hmm. sort of like held on to it for so many years as like I failed camp and all this crap. And the moment I told it and had Herschel Bleefeld make us improv song about it <laughs> healed forever. It's no longer a go. thing. It's just done. And like, if it takes a podcast, then that's a great outcome. So, all right. Anyway, we got off this tangent, but Greta, like you're, you're okay, right? Yeah, I'm great. Everything's fine good. now. Okay, good. Okay. Fine. I'm going to be, see, in November, I should be two and a half years cancer-free. That's amazing. Yeah. Did, your, uh, did you ever find out what the young hunky doctor did? Was no, it was- I never did. Okay. Really curious <laughs> about that. No, right. <laughs> he was just actually, he was part of the Sloan Kettering, like, bonus, like, like a candy striper yeah, program. Such a good oh, idea. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good idea. Like really good looking people around just to make you feel great and be like, yeah, I got this. They have no actual medical qualifications. They're just sort of there to dress up the joint. I like it. Somebody actually was probably putting a catheter in you at the time and you didn't notice because (laughs) there was a hunky doctor guy there. Yes. Oh, wow. So I see a new, that's very Sloan Kettering thing to do. They really know. They really know their stuff. (laughs) Um, well (laughs) thank you both so much for uh taking the time out of your evenings to come and tell stories about real life i think uh i think we're pretty lucky i think we all live pretty good real lives well you have this here this is this is my here's my mode you tell a story about an incredibly inspiring 
moment with a with a guy who you not only respected and liked but gave you some incredible wisdom just before passing like that's an amazing story mm-hmm. on the other side of this story sandwich <laughs> this really great story about the right attitude when you're facing something as scary as cancer and in the middle of this sandwich you have a, a pee story from <laughs> but wait, the whole time i was wondering like while you were in that bathroom and i thought with that other little kid i was yeah. like I wonder if they're both holding their penises at this point. Like that really would have said it for me. I was sort of imagining that both of you were standing there with like, uh. Wait, and really- then he keeps moving at the same time. I move. Had I, here's the truth. Had I gone ahead and tried to do the dark deed, I probably yeah. would have then figured it out. I would have went, oh, well, he's moving like I'm moving. But I was so nervous around this fake person that by the end of it, who knew? But anyway, I'm always happy to be. Before you figured it out, would you have gotten a little bit mad that he was mimicking you? Yeah, I probably would. The first <laughs> right. initial emotion would have been that because up to that point, he had ignored me. Right. I mean, to like, this day, it still kind of makes me mad until I have to remind myself that it was me. <laughs> it turns out I'm a, I'm a super dick in the dark. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. Aren't we all? I guess so. Um, all right. Well, I, I think all stories are awesome, and they all have a home here. So thank you all for joining. Thank you for listening. It's been 20 of these. I want 20 more. I'll get to 800 by the year 2035, by which time there will definitely be a West Wing reboot. <laughs> all right on. Yes. This guy's walking down the street when he falls in the hall. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by, and the guy shouts up, Hey, you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down in the hole, and moves on. Then a priest comes along, and the guy shouts up, Father, I'm down in this hole, can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down in the hole, and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me, can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. The friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. That voice, of course, was the great John Spencer as Leo McGarry on a tremendous second season episode of The West Wing called Noel. Hearing that voice gives me chills and confirms that on January 1st, 2016, we will start rewatching The West Wing from start to finish. Maybe we'll even do weekly reports. But that story that Leo tells to his protege, Josh Lyman, is such a simple, powerful ode to friendship. It's the kind of friendship you hear each day on the morning stream with our guest Scott Johnson and his pal Brian Ibbett. It's the kind of friendship that Greta offered to Matt all those years ago when he was alone in New York City with a demanding job and no place to call home. And it's the kind of friendship that we're trying to capture just a small glimpse of here on this show, bringing on the kind of friends who love nothing more than just trying to make each other laugh. And thank you, all of our friends out there, for your support. Thank you for your emails, your tweets, and special thanks to those of you who are able to support our show at patreon.com slash Jenny J. That's J-E-N-N-I-E-J. We're about $30 away from our first goal, which is super exciting. Thanks to our story backers, Rushan Brantley, Les Gephardt, Melissa, Movie League Mike, Scott Wilhelm, Robert Van Kalker, That Charlie Dude, Jeremy Fisher, Riff Riffles, Scott Martin, Micah Cutler, Brian Bender, Richard J. Struffolino, Alex Lasnick, Einar, Jeremy Clark, Alan Roth, James Thatcher, and Greg Skinner, TV's Egon. 
thank you to the starting story lineup. April, James Kreger, Mike Huller, Kevin Belanca, Preston Monroe, Linda Thompson, Patrick Kahn, Nick Batos, Christopher Wright, Tony Nolan, Brian Folds, Tom Gerke, Butch Vale, Shane English, Sarge D, Tim Magnuson, Don Banks, Philip D, Deborah Abel, Josh Harrow, Trevor Giswold, Richard Gunther, Melanie Knopf, Jason Beck, Rory Simpson, Elizabeth Murray, Teresa Ozoa, Corey, Louise, Anders Lund, Mike Scucha, Terry Cook, John H. Maloney, Patrick Wolf, Chimera, Jeffrey Zilks, and Sunny G. Sunbun. And of course, thank you, Ellie Goldman, our story MVP. You have a three-part Twitter story coming your way when you least expect it. Uh, you can email us at tellitanyway at gmail.com, tweet us at tellitany, or check out our Facebook page. Also, we'll be at LA Podfest this weekend, just hanging out and listening to some shows. So if you're in town, come on by and say hi. Otherwise, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>